I recently sat down with my friend Zach Roberts and talked with him about his experiences being a gay man who feels a deep desire to follow the teachings of Jesus while navigating the sinner rhetoric and purity culture commonly within the Christian faith. My recently reading a book called What's So Amazing About Grace by Philip Yancey dominated my thoughts during this conversation because of my realizations on what grace is. And my new perspective is that, although I've always believed no man should dictate what another does, that thought remains but with a new foundation from grace. God, whoever God is, has the infinite power of grace. That grace negates humans needing to have an opinion on other humans and religions dictating who will and won't enter heaven. This was an interesting podcast for me because I had to reopen my mind to the structures of organized religion, remembering that many people do live inside those walls of good and evil, sin and sinner, heaven and hell. I have long since abandoned these constructs, so this was an excellent opportunity for me to have empathy and belief and respect for structure inside of another's religious life. I know you will hear how genuine and thoughtful Zach is. Nobody could possibly convince me God doesn't love the shit out of him. Thank you, Zach, for coming and sitting with me. I have never had the opportunity to sit with somebody and discuss sexuality, let alone faith and sexuality. I think that's an awesome topic. You reminded me that when I did my podcast with Becky, who is a really good friend of yours, that she used a term that I hadn't heard before, which is purity culture. And of course, I can assume I know what that means. But if you don't mind, let's start with that term, defining it, since I think it could possibly help people understand where we're headed. Yeah. So I don't actually have a technical term for purity culture. So I'm sure anyone that listens to this may be able to correct me on the exact definition. But with my understanding of purity culture, I see it mostly in evangelical Christianity as kind of a response to sexual purity um, that is provided through the Bible and mainly through a specific interpretation of the Bible. And so that's kind of enforcing abstinence before marriage and communicating a very clear designated gender roles and the way that we relate to one another. I've done a bit of reading on it. Most of the reading that I've done on it is following people who have experienced trauma through being raised in purity culture. I feel like there's a lot of uh, real extreme cases historically and and even in present day, I don't feel like I was around a very extreme case, but I know it's prevalent in the culture. Even that right there, as far as you have defined it, enlightens me because I didn't even realize that, that it's coming from a place that is religion based. I grew up in a religious environment and a pretty strict one, but because I walked away from that environment at 19, I'm so far removed from it that I don't even think along those lines anymore. I don't relate my thoughts to religion, my choices in life, my actions, my interactions to religion, ever. That makes me sound like such a quote-unquote sinner. 
<laughs> but I don't think like that. I abandoned many words and many ideologies uh, long ago. And so thank you for defining that for me, because that's even clearer than I thought it would be for what we're going to talk about. Mm-hmm. Along those lines, I have been spending a lot of time thinking about how different my life is from that of a gay man who is wanting to be living in an environment of culturally religious choices and even, to use an intense word, righteousness. I remember when I did have a religious mindset that living in certain ways, you know, I had these predefined expectations that dictated my choices in life. So preparing for this podcast, I had to reopen my mind to some very specific thought processes based on belief. Hmm. Because you've shared some writings with me, I was continually going, oh, wow, it's nice to be reminded that each of us have our own perspective, our own struggles, our own everything. It's so fascinating to read your experience being so different from mine. That does have a lot to do with my age, because I want to say I'm so much older than you, which isn't inaccurate. I don't know, actually. No, I think I am. (laughs) Because you're early 30s, right? Mid-30s. Are you 35? I'm 35. Going to be 36 this year. And so I am considerably older than you in terms of uh, life perspective. When you reach my age, I think that you have dusted off so much residual belief that you get handed. And and I have long since done that dusting in many ways, you know, because I don't consider myself, quote unquote, Christian. I don't label myself in any way, really. I'm happy to give myself the freedom to believe whatever I want and however it feels right. I didn't realize I had done that so well mm. until I was reading some of the things that you had written about your experience. And I was like, wow, oh, yeah, people do that. And people do that to other people. Oh, yeah. And people think like that. And people consequently feel these things. I'm, I'm trying not to tell your story and almost being too overly vague, I realize. But because of being so far removed from your experience, I would love it if you would, on whatever level feels comfortable to you, tell your story. And I'm not asking you to go into all kinds of detail. I want you to be comfortable and to tell whatever part of it you have. And to be clear, mention what struggles you do find yourself facing. And the depth of that is obviously your call. So I've shared my story at, I think, three or four different points. I've made like two or three videos. And if I look back at those, there's a clear evolution in the way that I navigated and the way that I'm navigating uh, spirituality, relationship with Jesus, and approaching my sexuality, which is super fun to be able to have those segments documented. Cool. None of those videos are available anymore because I, I am in a different place and I don't, I don't fully agree with everything I said. And I'm sure a few years from now, I'll look back at things I say today and probably disagree with those things as well. And so. that's what I love about growth. If you are willing to let yourself grow, you are then later willing to go, 
you know, I didn't have as much information then as I do now. And I have better to me, better perspective. So I'm going to just turn off or make unavailable the old things I said in light of my new thoughts, my mm-hmm. new feelings. That's anyway. good. I guess I'll start like at the very beginning. When I was around five years old, uh, I was kind of in a shaky family lifestyle. It was a divorced home. I know everyone involved was doing their best to do things well, but it was a very broken situation and uh, several abusive situations. And so everything was already pretty rocky. By my fourth grade year, I was flipping through the channels and I saw a gay couple. It was a gay-themed movie and, and there was these two older gay men that were together and and I remember watching them and for the first time I felt like oh my gosh this so resonates with what I feel ways that I have felt different as I've been interacting with classmates and other kids my age unfortunately my sexuality was awakened way before that and so I was already immaturely aware of a lot of those dynamics. So I was able to recognize the difference that I was experiencing in the way that I felt towards people of the same sex and how I felt towards people of the opposite sex. And also at that, up to that point, I, the derogatory names like queer faggot and those cruel words were already used at me in several situations. And And so I was already aware that this is a bad thing in the environment I'm in. I was in small town, Oklahoma, moving around. So especially that area, like I was terrified that people would find out that I had feelings for other boys. I was really terrified. I was scared of being ridiculed, being ostracized, even being beaten. I had discovered stories of people being beaten to death for being gay. And so I had a lot of fear with that discovery. If you don't mind me just interrupting, don't forget where you're at. Okay. I would like to acknowledge that fear in and of itself, being young and feeling fear, aside from anything else, let's just single that out, right? Young and in fear. That is its own trauma, separate from any other trauma. Yeah. It is its own trauma. And I think it's important to acknowledge that and to respect it Mm -hmm. because that in itself carries a need for healing outside of all the other things. The whys almost don't even matter. When you have a child experiencing fear on a regular basis, that is trauma. And when you have a child experiencing fear for specific reasons, those reasons are also trauma. And there can be multiple reasons. And each of those is in its own right a trauma that as an adult, you somehow have to heal because you don't know how to heal things when you're young. In a way, you're only being traumatized. You aren't healing. Healing happens so much further after the fact. People don't know to encourage children to heal trauma as trauma is happening. You know, we're all such dumb humans. We don't know to do that. If we know it, we don't do it. Anyway, so one of my traumas is a lack of safety. Again, outside of any of the other traumas. And so that sense of a lack of safety is a trauma that I've been working on healing. And so I just want to throw out there my respect for that thing 
separate from others. Hopefully you are able to respect it too and consider healing it separate from all the other things instead of just bundling them all together and go, I need to get over this. I need to heal this. Just Mm -hmm. again, allow it to be what it is and be patient with it and respect it. For me, so much healing happens in the releasing. And for me, release comes through tears. It's funny how there have been many times that I've healed trauma that I have found. I know when I'm on the verge of being done healing it, when talking about it is no longer tethered to tears. Hmm. Then I know that I'm getting through, I'm moving past it. Anyway, that was a tangent. Sorry. Go back to where you were. (laughs) I appreciate you acknowledging that. In the trauma work I've been working through um, in the past few years, something that Uh, that I thought was really interesting is whenever we incur trauma as children, our brains are continually developing. And so it's kind of like, I don't know the exact science behind it, but every time as our brain grows, our whole worldview changes. We have a whole new worldview. And what a lot of psychologists have discovered through trauma work is a five-year-old incurring trauma and then works through it by the time they're 10 years old, well, then they turn 11 and they have this whole new worldview that they have to reprocess this past experience through their new worldview. And then whenever that shifts again, they have to reprocess that trauma through this new perspective. And for men, I think it's around the age 25 or 30 that that brain development stops happening or that kind of like brain growth. I understand the, the base, the like concept of it. I was getting frustrated because I was like, I've looked at this stuff over and over and over again, but being able to acknowledge as we're growing, we're having to reprocess it. And it makes sense to have to go back to it several times. Mm -hmm. As an example of that in our day, we experience different brain states and there's alpha, beta, Uh, theta and delta. As you are falling asleep, your brain moves into theta, where you are the most receptive to suggestion. Also, your brain is in theta up until the age of seven. So you are the most open to suggestion. You are the most receptive up until the age roughly of around seven because of theta. You're literally just downloading Things that happen as a little kid really actually are bigger because of the state you are in to receive. You know what I should do is I should find, I believe it was a YouTube video on the different brain states that had me going, oh my heck, I need to record a sleep story that I can fall asleep to so that I can program my theta brain. Hmm. And I did record one, but I've never shared it. I need to actually follow through with that. Hmm. That's interesting. Anyway, back to your story. I didn't mean to interrupt you twice. No, no, that was great. So around that time period, the way that I processed these thoughts and kind of in these experiences, the way that I internalized them, which will kind of connect with things I've had to work through recently with faith, was I was able to recognize that I was gay, that I was attracted. I was attracted to the same sex, never experienced attraction to the opposite sex. And I also acknowledged that this would cause me danger and this would cause me to get hurt in society and even in my home life. My internal dialogue was, I hate this. Why am I this way? I don't want to be this way. 
I'm afraid of being seen. I'm afraid of people knowing this. So I hate this part of me. Therefore, I hate myself. And life circumstance was already crazy. And so in the fourth grade through middle school, I really struggled with suicidal thoughts and turned to drugs. By my seventh grade year, it was my goal in life to try every single drug in the world, uh, which was a stupid goal. But That's fascinating that at that young, you would even have that yeah. thought process. Yeah. Well, seventh grade was when I, in fourth grade, I tried pot for the first time. Fourth um, grade. Yeah. And then seventh grade, I tried uh, um, acid, LSD, and that was a wild trip. That must have been. In seventh grade, you're what, 12? Yeah, I think about 12. Oh, my hell. Yeah. I was so sheltered. Oh my gosh, I was a mess. Uh, but I was really good at internalizing everything. Because I learned early on how to how to please people, because that was kind of the way that I survived. So I was able to just keep quiet and do all those crazy things. It was kind of an escape for me. Fast forward to my junior year of high school. Up to that point, I had engaged with Christianity a little bit. I had been to church with some friends, and I had gone to church camp as a little kid. And I felt like, at that point, I felt like if God existed, then I was doomed for, I was doomed for hell because I was doing drugs, I was gay, and my life was already crappy. So I was like, God's real, then, then I'm doomed. And hmm. But then my junior year of high school, I had gotten taken to jail for possession of marijuana. Um, I was 17, so I was tried as an adult. I was in Texas at the time. And then shortly after that, I had a very vivid supernatural experience with God. And through that experience, I perceived that it was it was Jesus. And, and pretty much in that experience, what was communicated to me was that God had been protecting me my whole life, which was huge because I never felt safe. And then in that Jesus had good plans for my life, and that if I continued to do drugs, I would throw all that away, which that was a very logical conclusion. <laughs> and uh, I like that you say throw it away because going to hell and throwing away something that's beautiful are two very different things. Yeah, yeah. Like it wasn't even a threat of hell. Yeah. You know? I'm so pleased that it came that way for you. And so at that point, I... I believed in Jesus. I perceived it to be Jesus of the Bible, probably because that was my cultural context for God was Christianity. And the language that was used with me in this encounter that I had with God was passages from scripture that I was unaware of at the time. It wasn't until later that I discovered like, oh, <laughs> the words that the internal voice spoke to me were from the Bible. And wow. uh, which was really cool. Around that time period, I was moving to Hawaii for my senior year of high school. I believed in God and I quit doing drugs. And I felt like if God is real and all that I really want is a man to spend the rest of my life with, to share love with, in the same way that drugs was my escape, trying to find the right guy became my escape. But I continued to try to find my identity in other guys. And so each guy I would meet would become the one. I was miserable. I was depressed. After I graduated high school, I had another dramatic encounter with God. Whenever I talk about God, 
I reference God as a he, but I also want to acknowledge that I believe God transcends gender. Yeah, but I agree. I, but I use the language of, of he just because that's kind of been traditionally the, what? Yeah, traditionally what so I'll just I default to he. Yeah. Every time I say he in my mind I'm thinking or she, but that just feels like extra words whenever yeah. I'm talking yeah. about God. So I just wanted to I just wanted to communicate that. No, same thing, because I kind of refer to God as it because I don't even use the term God. I use the term the organizing force hmm. because it is well, that's kind of a complicated story. Instead of saying it, because that also sounds peculiar and it's distracting, I too say he just for ease. So I totally understand what you mean. Okay, good. <laughs> I think another reason why I say he is because Jesus has been probably the biggest figure as far as like shaping my internal life and shaping my worldview and in relating to Jesus, which I have. I have a lot of thoughts on that, but I think Jesus is one of the reasons why I say, why I reference with he, but. That makes sense. So I have this significant experience with God where God's pretty much communicating to me in a real dramatic way that the lifestyle that I'm living is not who he created me to be. That's not where my identity is. And that was a really definitive moment for me. Like that was the moment that in my evangelical experience that was my quote unquote salvation moment and baptism of the Holy Spirit moment. In one moment, I got up off the floor. I had been weeping, just saying, Jesus, do whatever you have to do. Just come into my life. And everything literally went from black and white to color for me. I suddenly saw life and purpose in creation, that there was a creator and that the creator is love and is beautiful and that this creator loves me. And that was like a huge shift for me internally. I think this is what life is about. Making choices like you and I have made throughout our lives that have us going, I think that was a bad choice. I think that didn't serve me. And you can only know good choices by making bad choices and making good ones and having comparison. Yeah. And if I were going to define the meaning of life, it would be to learn. Mm, I agree. As I'm listening to you, I'm hearing somebody who is learning, and this is the meaning of life. And yes, it's a struggle, but if everything were handed to you and you just received everything you were handed and didn't make choice and didn't make bad choices, what would you really know at the end of it? Yeah. You wouldn't have a life lived and learned. That's a part of the meaning of the tattoo that I got last year. Oh, Yes. So I have that experience and what I do with homosexuality in that moment is I immediately recognize that I love Jesus, that Jesus is the one I want to follow, that I'm now, I like, I had surrendered my life to Jesus in evangelical terms. And so I wanted to be a disciple of Jesus in essence. I wanted to follow in the ways of Jesus because of my brokenness my brokenness in the sense of the ways that I was hurt growing up, I was constantly looking for a sense of security and constantly assessing how can I be accepted in the group of people that I'm around, looking for people to identify me and to find acceptance in that group of people. And so it was kind of this calculation of 
okay, I'm following Jesus now. So now I have to look around and see who who is following Jesus, which is the church, and predominantly the church's message about being gay is it's a sin, it's wrong, you can't be gay and Christian. So I have to distance myself from that because not only does the church not approve of that because they perceive that God has communicated through the Bible that this is a sin, that God hates sin, therefore God hates homosexuality, therefore if if I live that out, then God hates me, you know, is pretty much the, the assessment of that. My internal world became, I need to do away with this. Somehow, I don't know how, but I need to do away with it to be accepted. You near enough said, and yet didn't say, uh, love the sin or hate the sin. Yeah. And we spoke about that the other day, that those aren't God's words. Right. Those are man's words. Man loves to put words in God's mouth. It amazes me how much of religion, air quotes, is not God. Mm. It is man. It is man being judgmental, man saying, these are the conditions, these are the conditions, you must, you must, you've got to, or else. So a lot of what we end up believing isn't even from God. It's from man. Yeah, I agree. I mean, that phrase is, I get the heart of it. Like I, I whenever I hear people say it. Fair. We, we, we do. But at the same time, since when does God use the word hate? Yeah. I feel like I understand. I think that that phrase is very destructive. I don't think it's a helpful phrase. It has a lot of baggage and I don't think it accurately communicates the heart of God. But on the flip side, I, I do understand to a degree of where people are coming from whenever they're saying it. Cause I feel that as I've been in conversation with people, as I've been coming out to people I feel them using that filter and kind of wrestling through that of like, okay, how do I love this person? How do I, how do I love the sinner and hate the sin? Like I feel that filter. I hate it, but but I can, I can feel them trying to reach me through that because the Bible does say that God hates sin. And I would say that, that God loves us and hates anything that would destroy or diminish us. And so in the same way that if I have a friend who is, who is a heroin addict and I see heroin like completely destroy this person's life, I hate that drug, mm-hmm. you know, like I hate what it does mm-hmm. to that person. I feel like that is what from, from someone who's using that phrase and is, is in that place from their perspective, they are seeing, they're equating I know this because I've done this. I've used this analogy before in previous years, which I haven't gotten to that yet in my story, but but they view like in their perspective, God has communicated that homosexuality is is a sin and it's in it takes the individual out of God's purpose and is destructive like doing drugs. You know, like doing drugs is to our body. Homosexuality is to like Hmm. our spirit. It like diminishes us. Hmm. I disagree with that, but I see what you're saying. Yeah. I mean, I I I disagree with it at this point too, Mm -hmm. but I can understand. I can understand. Like if I, if I'm sitting with somebody and they have that perspective, 
I really want to honor their perspective. The areas that I feel like I want to address and confront is how they are harming others from their perspective. Meaning, I, I don't have any intention of changing someone's conviction because everyone's yeah. on a journey. Yeah. But what I do have a desire to do is to change the conversation. And so I'm less concerned with sitting down with my friends and con and like convincing them that being gay is not a sin. I'm more concerned with, with this is where I'm at in my journey. This is where you're at in your journey. How can we walk together? Mm -hmm. You know, where we're honoring each other and we both have the humility of neither one of us have it figured out. And how do we walk in love together mm -hmm. in this? And the truth is, neither of you has been granted the authority to judge the other. Yeah, exactly. Neither of you have. So in a way, how dare either of you try? Life is about learning. Yeah. Each of you are supposed to be learning on your own journey, not either of you dictating what the other one learns and how. And when. Yeah. This may or may not be a good thing to add to the point, but in the book, What's So Amazing About Grace by Philip Yancey, there's this small thing on page 54 that jumped into my mind. In the Bible, in fact, God shows a marked preference for real people over good people. In Jesus's own words, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. In one of his last acts before his death, Jesus forgave a thief dangling on a cross, knowing full well the thief had converted out of plain fear. That thief would never study the Bible, never attend synagogue or church, and never make amends to all those he had wronged. He simply said, Jesus, remember me. And Jesus promised, today you will be with me in paradise. It was another shocking reminder that grace does not depend on what we have done for God, but rather what God has done for us. Hmm. Ask people what they must do to get to heaven and most reply, be good. Jesus' stories contradict that answer. All we have to do is cry help. God welcomes anyone who will have him and in fact has made the first move already. Most experts, doctors, lawyers, marriage counselors, set a high value on themselves and wait for clients to come to them. Not God. As Soren Kierkegaard put it, When it is a question of a sinner, he does not merely stand still, open his arms and say, Come hither. No, he stands there and waits, as the father of the lost son waited. Rather, he does not stand and wait, he goes forth to seek, as the shepherd sought the lost sheep, as the woman sought the lost coin. He goes, yet no, he has gone, but infinitely farther than any shepherd or any woman, he went, in sooth, the infinitely long way from being God to becoming man, and that way he went in search of sinners. Kierkegaard puts his finger on perhaps the most important aspect of Jesus' parables. They were not merely pleasant stories to hold listeners' attention or literary vessels to hold theological truth. They were, in fact, the template of Jesus' life on earth. He was the shepherd who left the safety of the fold for the dark and dangerous night outside. 
To his banquets he welcomed tax collectors and reprobates and whores. He came for the sick and not for the well, for the unrighteous and not the righteous. And to those who betray him, especially the disciples who forsook him at his time of greatest need, he responded like a lovesick father. As I've been reading this book, which a dear friend gave me, I didn't realize how ignorant to grace I was until I started reading this. I really did not understand grace, and I feel as though so many of us don't. And we've forgotten. He calls it ungrace. We act in ungrace all the time. And I would argue that is the struggle of being human and not God. And here we are acting as though we always know what God wants, that we know how God wants us to behave. We have him pegged when nothing could be further from the truth. We insist on judging. We insist that we know, we insist on so many things, and we're wrong. I'm trying to remember what you put, you and how you put it, you and the friend on the journey. Oh, and I said it's not for either of you to judge one another's journey. Ultimately, we can just leave that up to God. Yeah. I mean, honestly, that makes me think of the best responses I've gotten from people who actually disagree with my journey. As I've come out as as gay, open to dating, open to someday marrying a guy, which would be incredible. As I've been coming out and been in conversation with people, the best responses I've gotten are from, first of all, people who like really know me. And I have several friends who have communicated like, I disagree with the stance that it's like, that's okay for two men to be married. Though they don't communicate it like so straightforward. <laughs> Some people feel the need to communicate to me, hey, this is a sin. I feel convicted that I have to tell you this. And I like to make space never for heard them it to before. do that. Yeah. <laughs> but then I have friends who have in essence communicated, I don't agree with you on the conclusion that you're at at this point in your journey, at this in this process. But at the same time, your journey is not my journey. And so I don't know your full experience. What I know is that you are walking with God. And I do have this belief. This is how I see things. But I've been wrong about many things in the way that I've seen them. So this could be it. I mean, like, at this point, this is how I see it. And I don't see it any other way. But I'm open to the fact that I could be wrong. And so I want to continue walking relationship with you. And I still respect your walk with God, and, and I still acknowledge the gift that you have to this world as an individual, as a unique person in, in Christ, and I want to continue relationship with you. Those conversations have given me hope. They've, they've really blessed me personally and just continuing to feel loved where I was afraid of rejection and to feel fully seen and to still feel fully honored and respected. It gives me hope for our society, for the world, that it's, we don't agree with each other, but we're still able to see the dignity of a divine work in each other and able to continue walking together. That's a beautiful way to put it. Yeah. As you were reading that book, it was just reminding me of those conversations that have felt so good. Because I, I do have a passion. I am very open with my story, partially because I'm kind of an out there person. Like my emotions are usually right on my face and I've always been really open with whatever I'm going through. It's not that much for me to 
tell everybody. I have to be conscious of holding back sometimes. That way I'm not. I've never experienced you being too open. I don't perceive you that way. Oh, well, it's really easy to to engage with you. (laughs) Maybe you feel too open and, and I see it as normal. I sometimes have to pull back to guard myself. I have a tendency, if I'm sitting, if I just like meet you at a coffee shop, we strike up a conversation about a good book. We could be talking about the latest Stephen King novel that just came out one minute. And then the next I could go into, yeah, I was sexually abused whenever I was like five years old. And, you know, and this is kind of what I'm, I can real easily do that. You do TMI? Yeah. I'm, I think it's because I'm super open and. I am that person too, though. In my jobs, I come across a lot of strangers. The shit that comes out of my mouth, I often go, the hell, Natalie, you don't know this person? You just told them that? Well, everybody loves you, Natalie. (laughs) I think it's because you are so open, because you're real, and they're able to to experience you. I see genuineness as a big deal. And I don't even understand the need for people to be fake. God. That sounds like such hard work. Yeah. Anyway, so I understand the TMI. So I feel like that's part of that's part of why I'm so open with my story. But another part is I see two groups of people that I'm really passionate about. I see the queer community where suicide rates are two to three times higher for queer individuals, LGBTQ. Homelessness too. Homelessness. Yeah. Homelessness is at like, I think 30 to 40% of, of homeless youth identify as queer. There's so many people that are suffering in silence in Christian culture, in society overall. It is getting quite a bit better, but, but especially in, in religious environments that are suffering in silence. I feel like it's important if we feel led to do so, to share our stories. There is a comfort in shared experience, you know, and hearing someone who's like had a similar experience and it makes you feel less alone. It makes you feel heard and seen in a unique way. And the other group is, is honestly the church where I want to see the church do better at loving queer people because I feel like theology and policies, like all the debates of theology and policies It makes me sad because it completely overlooks individuals. It ignores real human people. Mm -hmm. In my journey through Christianity, I was super active in ministry. I was running a, a prayer room. So I was in it and I've loved it. But there is this sense of internalized self hatred. It's kind of what I've had to unpack is the dominant voice where I was at was the ex-gay movement, which ex-gay is the stance that being gay is a sin and the objective is to change your orientation. Ex-gay would be conversion therapy Hmm. because God didn't create anyone gay. It either happened because of demons or because of psychological damage. I've been delivered of the spirit of homosexuality several times and I've, uh, by someone else, you mean? Yeah, by someone uh-huh. else. Delivered, okay. Yeah, and like people praying over me and casting out the demon of homosexuality. 
I am grateful for the therapy I've had because it, it did give me a space where I could talk about my experiences. And I, I did have a lot of, I do have a lot of wounds from childhood that I was given space to, to work through that. What I recognized was happening with me internally was I had a moment three or four years ago where I was running a prayer room and the Lord was pretty much, you're so far, you're, you're, you're not letting me in your life, in your heart. And I didn't know what it was at the time. And so that, that's what kind of led me into silence. And before my experience was super charismatic, always had music going whenever I prayed and real fiery, real intense. And, but this kind of led me into quiet. And in the place of quiet, I discovered that I was still gay, but it was something that I felt like I needed to fix before I could be made whole. And it was a part of me that I was terrified of taking over me. I love ministry. I, I do genuinely feel called to the work that I've been doing. But there was also this side of it of I have to work extra hard to ensure that I stay in good graces with God. Because if I allow myself to enjoy other things in life besides prayer, meditation, discipleship, Bible reading, if I allow myself to engage in, in too much of those other things, I could get drawn out and overcome and displease God. Like this, mm. this thing inside of me could overcome me. I have to interrupt with this acknowledgement that you said good graces. Because my concentration has, as I've been thinking about doing this podcast with you, as I've been reading Philip Yancey's book, What's So Amazing About Grace, to hear you say God's good graces I feel as though that's very much a man-made term, too, because there is either grace or ungrace. Hmm. And Philip Yancey talks about that. There is no good graces. And I haven't heard him say that, but because my attention has been on grace, for you to use the term God's good graces, it was like alarm bells going off. Hmm. God only has grace. Humans have created ungrace, ignoring God's grace. and then created the term God's good graces. It feels harmful for you to even think like you have to stay in God's good graces because as a concept is even a lie. God only has grace. Hmm. Anyway, as that's I say, good. I interrupted that's... you. <laughs> no, that's great. That's that's interesting. I hadn't thought about it. I don't even know if I've ever used that phrase before. I don't know if it's just because it's such a common phrase. Yeah, you know, likely. But... Likely that's why you hadn't ever noticed. Do yeah. you care if I take the opportunity to share with you another thing from the book? Oh, go for it. So I am starting in the middle of something, but it is just so clear. He says, I've been picking on Christians because I am one, and I see no reason to pretend we are better than we are. I fight the tentacular grip of ungrace in my own life, although I may not perpetuate the strictness of my upbringing. I battle daily against pride, judgmentalism, and the feeling that I must somehow earn God's approval. In the words of Helmut Thielike, the devil succeeds in laying his cuckoo eggs in a pious nest. The sulfurous stench of hell is nothing compared with the evil odor emitted by divine grace gone putrid. In truth, though, a virulent strain of ungrace shows up in all religions. Then I want to turn to page 40. Religious faith, for all its problems, despite its maddening tendency to replicate ungrace, lives on because we sense the notorious beauty of a gift undeserved, 
that comes at unexpected moments from outside. Refusing to believe that our lives of guilt and shame led to nothing but annihilation, we hope against hope for another place run by different rules. We grow up hungry for love, and in ways so deep as to remain unexpressed, we long for our Maker to love us. I love that he acknowledges, I see no reason to pretend that Christians are better than we are. When I read that, I was like, oh, whoa, I wasn't expecting that. And not just Christians, you know, it doesn't really matter what label we give anybody. We really shouldn't pretend we're better than we are, because ultimately we are just human. We aren't given the opportunity. We aren't given the right. We aren't supposed to be the ones deciding where grace falls to be judging. Hmm. Anyway, Philip Yancey. It's a really cool book. I highly recommend What's So Amazing About Grace. And I think it's really important to, hmm, how should I put it? We humans have forgotten what grace is. Society hmm. is not built around any grace these days. Yeah. I genuinely feel called to what I've been doing, but I internally felt like I had to, I had to like fix this part of me and I couldn't let God in to that place in my life just because of my perspective was that God hates it. If it was seen, it could cause me to be rejected by the people that I've, I've surrounded myself with, which is the church. But through a process the Lord really started initiating this conversation, this relationship in this area of pretty much, you have to let me into this place. Like you have to open up your heart and allow yourself to experience and to talk with me about it, to receive my love in those places. As I started on that process, it was like three or four years ago, that I started actually opening up that place and acknowledging, okay, I'm still gay. It hasn't gone away. I've spent 15 years, you know, working really hard to make it go away. I've ignored it. I've done therapy, deliverance, and it hasn't gone away. And I, I want to let God into this place of my life. And so through that process, I really started asking tough questions of what does the Bible really say about this? What does God really think and feel about this? What do I really believe about this? Because I had mostly just kind of surrendered to the predominant interpretation of Scripture in regards to this issue, and which ended up started unraveling like majority of my Christian life, you know, was shaped by, by the culture and the interpretation of Scripture. And I started to recognize a lot of the people who had spoken into my life, the way that they were responding to the LGBTQ community. Like my eyes started opening to that. Mm -hmm. And I was like, this is horrible. Like, <laughs> this is so mean. And this is not, this doesn't feel like the Jesus I've grown with. This doesn't feel like love. And it started unraveling a lot of religion. The The popular phrase is deconstruction of of religion. I prefer, I use that language because I think it's helpful because it's what's used, mm -hmm. but I also usually prefer to say evolution. And I, I think it's important to the evolution of religion, mm -hmm. the okay. evolution of my faith. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, just because I, that's a really accurate term that I think each of us should adopt because even though I wouldn't say I have quote unquote faith, it's like the evolution of belief when used in that way. And so the evolution of faith, where you put your spiritual direction, 
So that's a really good term. Yeah. It's been really helpful for me because the, the thing that I have been tempted to do as I've been on this journey, especially once I started using the language gay, I kind of went from an ex-gay place where I was saying I'm same-sex attracted, but I'm choosing not to embrace that and I'm pursuing another life, you know, apart from that. And then I, I entered into this space of I'm gay, but I'm going to embrace celibacy. Like I'm not going to try to change anymore, but I'm just going to embrace a life of celibacy. But honestly, just using the language gay, I immediately started to feel, because I was already not going to church either. I was already kind of part of, felt like a radical group of people at the time of, we weren't going church on Sundays. We were just doing a prayer room and doing life together. And, and so that coupled with me using the language of gay and again, I'm still at this point, I was still adhering to that perspective of scripture that it's a sin. I was just embracing celibacy and just trying to authentically express where I was at mm -hmm. in my experience. And people had so much issue with that. And I immediately started to feel like I'd interact with people in public with other Christians and they would still smile at me, but there was caution behind their smile. Mm -hmm. There was like nervousness of I realized a lot of Christians are always looking for wolves in sheep clothing. Huh. I felt I suddenly started to feel like I'm not on the inside of this anymore. I started to feel like an outsider. And so through that process, I felt hurt and it was really tempting for me to just say, screw it. I'm done. Yeah. I'm starting over. I was seriously going to change my name. And just whenever I made the move here to Utah, I was going to change my name and just start all over. Because huh. something that I believe is that Christ transcends the person of Jesus, that the, the name Christ is a divine presence. And I don't want to get into the whole theology of that. But in essence, I believe Christ is present in all things and has been present in all of my life and is present through all of our mess. I look back and I don't agree with everything that I was in, with everything that I was doing. But I feel like I can genuinely see Christ at work in my heart. There's a passage that says God works everything together for the good of those who love him. I believe that. Like, I believe that I think religion is really destructive. I think purity culture is really destructive. I, I do think too. There's a lot of things that, that I feel like, man, I missed out on possibly finding the love of my life. And, and I missed out on X, Y, and Z. But at the same time, I feel like I kind of needed those tight. Like I look back and I'm like, I'm so grateful for those tight reins because I was a mess. I was like, if I hadn't have been reined in for that period of time and and given the space and the context to to be centered in a divine presence, to be centered in a self that is not dependent on external for identity. I feel like I really needed that. I was kind of spinning out of control and I doubt I'd be alive. Hmm. I can look back and I can be grateful. But I guess the, the point amidst all this rambling is it was important for me to, to not divorce myself from my past, to not say I've deconstructed everything, to not say that I've thrown out things. I hit this point where I was like, it would be a tragedy for me to throw out my life experience. You know, and I would say, argue it, it's impossible. Yeah. I, I honestly would. And let's return to the first seven years of your life. Your brain is in theta. 
Okay. You're receiving, receiving, receiving. It's literally impossible, psychologically impossible for you to throw out the person you become simply by experience. Every one of us is created by experience, by thought process, by learning, by analyzation, by the influence of others, unfortunately. You just can't change on a whim. To change who you are, I would say is almost impossible. All you can do is continue learning and continue growing and continue becoming a better version of you. There is no erasing the five-year-old that was abused. There is healing it. Mm -hmm. And I absolutely believe in healing. And I believe that it is something that does happen inside of the brain. And what healing entails, that's a whole nother podcast. But at the same time, if people argue we aren't born gay, fair, I'll hear that argument. But I will argue back, you can't change the fact that every being is in theta for the first seven years of their lives. So it almost doesn't matter how you're born on day one. Hmm. What happens for the next seven years dictates everything. Yeah. And then the next seven years after that has a whole nother effect than the next seven years after that. So all you can do is heal. You can't change, undo, exorcise any part of you. Yeah, that's good. The part that I was like, that I was tempted to want to throw out was the 15 years of religion, you know, and like everything I've learned Mm -hmm. from age 18 to 30. Okay. That period of religion where I felt like I started to see an example in the life of Jesus. I have friends who, for most gay people have grown up in Christian environment. There comes a point where they're like, this isn't going away. And I have a choice of, I could either stay in the system and just fake it, you know, like just, just ignore this part of me, just fake it till I make it kind of concept or just say F that. I'm done. I'm leaving all these relationships. I'm saying goodbye and I'm leaving God. I'm leaving, I'm leaving it all. I have friends who I've heard both places, either one of those choices I hear. And I'm like, yeah, <laughs> like, like I listen to people. I'm like, yeah, I understand. Yeah. I as in you. it sounds appealing or yeah. As in I get it. Oh, okay. I get it. I feel I've felt both. Uh huh. But the area that I felt challenged in, and I can't project this on on anybody else's journey, but what I felt important for my journey that I saw in the life of Jesus was Jesus walked this middle road, this middle, difficult, humble road. He sat at the dinner table with not just sinners like the prostitutes and the tax collectors, but he also sat at the table with Pharisees. He didn't completely vacate the religious system. He didn't completely separate himself from those outside of the religious system. But he looked at all the relationships that were put around him. He chose, I'm not going to surrender to the ways of this world. I'm not going to conform to the wrongness in the religious system that I'm seeing with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. But I'm also not going to surrender to these spiraling lives of, you know, people who are completely outside the system of like prostitution, just getting drunk all the time, 
he walked this middle ground and maintained friendship with everybody. Acceptance. Except, yeah, he accepted yeah, it. He accepted, accepted everybody everyone. is on their own journey and realized it's not his place to worry about that. Yeah. To judge them, to do anything but love. Yeah. And he did, I mean, he did speak truth. I mean, he confronted the Pharisees for sure. But I just kind of felt that really spoke to me because as I was finding myself offended at religion and hurt, it felt like for me to just leave a camp that I disagree with and join in with a camp that I do agree with, that actually does not challenge my heart fully in growth. And that does not actually produce peace in society. That creates this dualistic us against them. So I feel like it's important to walk that middle ground and to be willing to have those converse, those tough conversations to bring a sense of togetherness. You reminded me, I heard Simon Sinek quote Nathan Rutstein recently, and this quote hasn't left me, and I think it's important to share it in everywhere that it actually fits. Mm. Prejudice is the emotional commitment to ignorance. And I thought of that a few times in the last half hour when you were talking about people caring about you, but being uncomfortable and feeling so sure that you must be a wolf in sheep's clothing. Again, I don't remember what you just said that made me go, okay, I've got to, I've got to grab that quote Yeah, to just break it down backwards. If one had an emotional commitment to ignorance and to staying ignorant one should ask themselves why. Hmm. Why am I so insistent on being emotionally attached to staying ignorant in this situation? When one doesn't ask that question, one keeps themselves in a prejudicial state over hmm. whatever circumstance. And most people can't put themselves in a gay man's shoes. It is what it is. Most straight men don't understand not being attracted to a beautiful woman. Yeah. Most straight women can't imagine being a man attracted to a man. And so the refusal to put one's self in a situation of imagining what that feels like is an insistence on staying ignorant. And what is that? That's prejudice. I overanalyze it. I love that. Because that really does, that quote invites us to continue to have a posture of learning from each other. Mm-hmm especially from those that we disagree with mm-hmm. that like, and that invites us to recognize the dignity in every human life. Yeah. And that why shouldn't every individual have the right to choose, or even if it's not a choice, have the right to be genuine to themselves. Nobody decides that for anybody else. Yeah. So, so you don't need to worry about having an opinion about it. Gosh, make life easier and just live and let live. It seems so hard to worry about what everybody else is doing and having an opinion on it. Yeah, especially in religious culture. I think a lot of it comes from fear. And whenever we're afraid, we want to try to control. For a lot of Christians, at least, the big fear with homosexuality and politics is that their rights will get taken away and that the the end that they're seeing is them being persecuted. I know it's more complex than that. I feel like if you sat down with most Christians, they'd give you totally different answers. But I feel like there is fear and there is this trajectory of, well, 
we see being gay as a sin. And if we as a nation open that up and let that in, then that is like a gateway drug for everything else. And we're going to crumble. There's like this doom and gloom kind of narrative. I've seen it, but I disagree with it. Yeah, Yeah, I disagree with it too. It's like skin color. Back in 63, it was a huge freaking deal. And now in 21, get over it already. Yeah. Our skin, even you and I, both being classified the same color, we're not the exact same color. So get over it. Hmm. Over the past few years, I had come to this place of becoming comfortable with being gay and letting God into that place, inviting God to engage in that. I'd had a conversation with God. I was spending time in prayer. And one of the things I brought up is I was like, well, what about this gay thing? Because I was still wrestling with, is it a sin? Is it not a sin? Can I just be celibate? Yeah. Can I just be, is celibacy really the answer? If I'm not celibate and I end up in a relationship with a guy, will I go to hell? Asking those questions, I was still wrestling with those and feeling the mystery of those. And one of those wrestlings with God of, of whenever I say wrestling, I mean, just kind of asking those questions, crying, being angry, feeling God with me and loving that just all the emotions, you know, tied up at once. And, but in one of those times, like one of my questions was, well, what about this gay thing? And what I felt from God in that moment was I'm really not that concerned about the gay thing. If I'm concerned about anything, it's that you disconnect from me, that you disconnect from peace what I inferred that to mean was me doing things on my own, like me not inviting God into that place. And so that was, I felt an invitation from God of like, rather than having a conclusion of whenever you see a guy that you think is really hot, rather than feeling ashamed of that and like trying to push it away or thinking about it and kind of putting me to the side, why don't you ask me about it? Like, why don't you talk to me about that? Why don't you tell me that, hey, God, I think this guy that you created is pretty hot. <laughs> like, should I give him my number? To Inviting that, like, him in. That's a smart way to see this. Yeah. That gave space for me to have mystery, you know, because I feel like ultimately it's not a black and white. This is how it is. Here's the list of sins. Here's the list of things to do that's good. And you just have to maintain these lists. I feel like Jesus, even in scripture, he challenges those mindsets and invites us into walking in the spirit, walking in relationship, walking with an open heart. As you said earlier, the middle road. Yeah, the middle road. So as I started walking in that, another thing that had happened that was like a real defining moment for me in this process that was huge. And I feel like I wouldn't have had the language for this. And I think there's a lot of people out there that would resonate with this. And they probably don't have language for it because I sure didn't. I wouldn't have said this. But I had this dream where I was in this like real charismatic setting. This prophetic lady stood up, which this dream is kind of weird because I wouldn't be in this setting anymore because it used to be my I used to go to real charismatic churches. But this woman stands up and she points at me and she prophesies over me. She tells me so many things. Everything she's saying is, is so right on with my life. And whenever I woke up, I honestly, I couldn't remember anything she said, except one thing where she said, you will never be able to love others fully unless you fully love yourself. Initially, I was like, that feels good. 
But simultaneously, I was, I don't believe that. I feel challenged by this because biblically, I have to hate part of myself. And I remember I told- I absolutely believe with her. And, and I can say I have experienced that. Yeah. Full. Yeah. I mean, I think this is, an, I mean, I think it's a huge thing for, I think, a lot of people. But I remember talking with Becky. I was telling her about this dream and I was like, I feel like I'm supposed to hate part of myself biblically. And that she was like, where do you sense. see that? Yeah. And I, I recognize where I see it. And I came to realize, I was like, that's not what it's saying. So you found a scripture that was where you were drawing this from and you were interpreting it inaccurately? Yeah. Well, I mean, because I feel like it was the concept of to gain your life, you have to lose your life. There's this dualistic interpretation of scripture that people who see it this way would say, well, scripture is very direct about this, that we're in a battle within ourselves, that we're warring against ourselves, that we have our new man that is in the evangelical world. You're baptized in Jesus, and so you're a new creation. You have this new spirit within you. And Paul uses language of the flesh. And so we have this inner battle of my spirit is warring against my flesh. And so I have to crucify my flesh. Without going into all the theology, but I did come to the realization that I had taken my sexuality and set it apart from myself to be fixed, and I hated my sexuality, and I was at war with my sexuality, and discovering that I actually can't separate my sexuality from myself. The only way I can experience healing, like wholeness of healing, is through my whole self, receiving God's love for my whole self and not just part of myself. That's when I started to recognize I've divided myself and hated part of myself because I said, God hates this part of myself. And so that kind of opened up this journey with God of receiving love for my whole self, for my sexuality, from God, and agreeing with that love. And I kind of incurred this mantra in my morning prayers of welcoming my, my mind the way that I think, my emotions the way that I feel, uh, my body the way that I look, and my sexuality. And acknowledging like, God, you created this and you love this. I welcome this. Mm -hmm. I love this too. Mm -hmm. And kind of awesome. as I started doing that, it really brought peace inside of me. So I came to this point a few months ago because something that I, that I didn't mention before was a few years ago as I started looking at homosexuality and all that stuff, I started looking at trauma in a real intentional way and allowing myself to feel that discovering my heart, discovering what I enjoy, discovering what hurts. And I came to the realization that I still battled with suicide. Anytime I would have anxiety spirals, I would default to, I hate my life. I just want to die. In the silence, I started to become aware of constant pain from my past. I feel trapped in pain from my past. I actually have no grid for life without this pain. So I have no feeling of hope for the future. Were you able to admit being attached to the pain or that's maybe the wrong way to word it were you aware of the inability to just let it go and move on um i mean i feel like i was i have to hold on to this because of i can't just let the past be the past and move on and be a new me there were a lot of reasons why the past was still holding on to me and why i was still holding on to my past and a part of it was i feel like it was really important for me to sit in that pain, 
to not just like experience the pain and be like, okay, God heal it, you know, but to like sit in it and invite God to sit with me in that pain. It made me aware of what was already there, but I was covering up. I was not dealing with it. And it was kind of seeping out in different ways and different triggers and where I would just get angry for no reason. I was aware that, that I was holding onto it and that it was, but I feel like I was in process Mm -hmm. with it. Just like I'm sure I'll be in process with this stuff for quite a while, but. If you don't mind me pulling an analogy out that I pull out kind of often, this is a really good example for my analogy. Life is a constant journey, right? We're constantly on this road of learning and experiencing. And if you choose to stop and sit down and go nowhere, you are making a choice. Your lack of movement is the journey you're choosing. Now, let's imagine a really awful thing happens. For a visual, you're sitting on the ground and it's right next to you on the ground. If sitting there on the ground right next to this thing is really uncomfortable and awful and does not serve you and doesn't benefit you and doesn't make you happy and is all these things we don't want in life, why not stand the fuck up and walk on? And if one does that, what is the point in walking back to it and staring at it and then saying, oh yeah, I need to move on and then deciding again to walk back and stare at it? To keep doing this, to stay near that thing that's so uncomfortable just so that you can go and look at it again, is not you moving forward on your path in life, on the road before you. It's just treading this same section over and over and over to stare at that ugly thing again. The truth is we're never going to forget anything that we go through that's shit. It's not going to be erased. But do you have to go stare at it? Do you have to walk back to it? And if so, why? Hmm. So I would say, how about acknowledge it's never going to not be there and move forward and just know it's on the path behind me and it's always going to be there and it doesn't matter. I don't have to walk back to it. I can keep moving forward because that's what my life is for, for me to continually be moving forward and new shit will happen on the path ahead. Am I going to sit down? And stare at it and be unhappy? Or am I going to go, oh yeah, this is one of those shitty things that I am going through that I'm going to feel, but that I'm going to move away from. It's not going to erase itself. I'm not going to forget it. I can still keep walking and it doesn't have to be part of me right now. Hmm. And so a lot of times I call that walking backwards too. I don't like walking backwards. I don't want to be walking backwards because if life is about learning, It's also about being in the search for happiness. Walking backwards isn't the way to do either of those. Yeah. I mean, that that analogy makes me think of, I think I'm hearing you correctly, but it makes me think of how I would differentiate introspection versus self-reflection, whereas I agree. And neither of those are obsession. I would argue walking back to it and staring at it is obsession. Introspection and self-reflection yeah you can be walking forward and doing both of those yeah the important thing for me the part that's been important in my healing journey to make space for introspection for me is like looking back at my at my life as a victim and just constantly going back there kind of this defines me 
But what's been important for me in my healing journey has been that I hadn't allowed myself to do in silence and in making space for listening to my heart and listening to what I'm feeling and being aware of my movements and my thoughts and the ways that I'm responding in relationships to people. A really simple example is being aware of like whenever it snows and there's a chance I'm going to drive on it, I get really anxious. And taking time to, first of all, to sit with that and to rather than move past it, to allow myself to sit with that and to be able to recognize what am I feeling? Hmm, I'm feeling, feeling anxious. I'm feeling, I'm feeling afraid and allowing myself to feel it and affirming that of my emotions are good. They help me to, to discern what's happening in my heart and they help me to discern my environment. And so allowing myself to sit in it, however long it takes, you know, like sometimes grief takes a long time and, Mm -hmm. But like with this example, like allowing myself to feel that. And then as I'm feeling it, as I'm becoming aware of what I'm feeling and what's coming up, why am I feeling? Where is this kind of- I think questioning where feelings are coming from is huge. Yeah. Allow yourself to feel and then say, why am I feeling this? I do. I think that's very important. Yeah. And I mean, for that example, that took me back to, I was like 10 and I wrecked a lawnmower. My stepdad responded a certain way. It communicated a message to me that created a fear and a a sense of shame for doing that. Being able to sit in that, I invite Jesus, I invite God into that experience. God, where, where are you in this moment? And what are you saying in this moment? And allowing God sit with me right there in that lawnmower and for Jesus to communicate what a good father would communicate to a son who did that in this meditation and even for Jesus to look at me and to be like, you feel hurt and you feel abandoned by people right now. I felt that too. And him taking me back to those passages, you know, where, where you see Jesus experiencing those emotions, feeling him sitting with me in that however long he needs to, you know, however long I need to feel companionship and in the hurt that I experienced. And then hearing God speak to that place as kind of rewiring that memory. That was kind of what I was getting at as far as... I can see what you mean. Does that make Mm -hmm. sense? Yeah. Yeah. I was like, are you talking about dwelling on something that you just need to get over? But you were talking about healing something that is unhealed. Yeah. I never wanted to do what you're talking about. So that's why, like that whole moving on kind of thing was what I did for 15 years. It was like, you know what, I, that's happened to me in my life. I'm just going to move on and I'm just going to ignore it Ignore it, and I'm okay. going to do these things and I'm going to do ministry. And it's been really good to allow myself to be angry, you know, to yeah. be sad yeah, and to, to accept you and all of your feelings. Yeah. Yeah. And so through that process, it kind of unearthed this constant sense of hurt and, oh, and that's why I felt snared by my past is because I wasn't working through it because there was this huge overarching piece around homosexuality that I hated. I hated myself and I was constantly fighting against myself. How I articulated coming into the new years, like my phrase was 2019, I discovered my heart. 2020, I want a desire to live. I lost a battle against myself and that's what it feels like. In 2021, I desire to live. It's kind of the phrase. 
it's that sense of I was trying to fight myself, that parceled out part, you know, that I hated. As I chose to embrace all of myself, that piece is so important. I feel like being able to embrace and love yourself because from that place, you're able to approach those trauma periods and really look at, because I think one of the big messages in, in trauma is based on our worth, the way that we say our, see our worth and being able to look at those from the vantage point of, no, I'm fully loved and accepted. So through experiencing that acceptance and that acceptance from God and that self-acceptance of the whole self, being able to relate with those hurts from my past, from the place of the inner assurance of worth and love and acceptance. And so that kind of took that healing work to another level. I say all that just to say that as I've been coming out, and that's been real important for various reasons, but as I've been doing that and I've had people respond with different ways, I came to the realization that I was like, for the first time in my life, I don't feel confined. I don't feel held back by my past. I don't feel that undergirding sense of hurt. And I actually desire to live. I wasn't suicidal all the time, but there was this overarching sense of, I would just rather not live. I'm not going to take my life, but I would just rather not live. I did have periods of suicide. I just prefer not to live. I know that feeling. I had that in my teens. But to be able to come to a place of, I'm actually excited about my future. And I'm excited to live, to be alive. And, and I love life. I love myself. I feel an inner peace that, that feels new to me. And so whenever people have come at me with theology and their opinions, you know what, you, you can say what you will, but I used to desire death and now I want to live. And I'm going to stay the course of, of life. I'm not going to be dictated by fear, self-hatred, or shame. I refuse to, to let those cool. direct my path. So much power comes with that insistence yeah, of being in charge and not allowing the negative things in life to be in charge. Totally. I recommend thinking more about grace, just oh, so yeah. that you don't have to allow other people's ungrace to carry any weight. Yeah, I feel like the biggest challenge ahead that I feel with that is I want to navigate relationships with grace. I want to be able to relate with people who see things differently than I do. I want to have an open heart to have those tough conversations because I want to see change. Again, not to change people's convictions, but no. to just see a change in the conversation mm -hmm. and the way that we approach our differences. And I see a lot of potential with that in Oklahoma. Like going back to Oklahoma City, I have tons of um, really close friends and I have relational equity to invite people into that journey because they know me, they've walked with me for a period of time. They're kind of confronted with this issue that they've never been confronted with in a personal way. Mm. And so for them to interact with a living, breathing person who's willing to open up their journey to them is, I think, a way forward in bringing change in that area. Cool. I had wanted to share with you a movie I watched recently. And because we've been talking for so long, I need to just throw it out there as a thing uh, instead of a discussion. And that is A Monster Calls is the movie. And one of the things that really stood out in this that my brain keeps returning to since I watched the film is the theme inside of the film that things happen and they aren't always good or bad. 
They're just things. Mm. And you don't have to label it either way, whether it's a person's actions or an outcome. On one hand, it could be labeled a bad thing. And on another hand, it could be labeled a good thing. But what if we just don't label it and we just let it be? Mm. And it was just a really good movie. Because I had seen it recently and because I had been thinking about talking to you, I was like, oh, I got to tell Zach about that. It's a really good way of thinking. Not everything is necessarily good or bad. They're just things. Hmm. And take from it what you will. Don't, don't label it one way or the other. I guess people insisting on defining sexuality as good or bad is unnecessary. It's just one of those things. And if it's not your journey, let it be. Hmm. Yeah. Let it be. Thanks for letting me do this. Thank you for being so willing so. to come and share. And I really appreciated the topic. And I respect the topic. I really do. I think every person gets to decide who they are and gets to feel what they feel and love who they love. Nobody else should be responsible for deciding any of that for another. Mm, yeah.